Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Life with Graft-Versus-Host Disease, GVHD, Post-Allogeneic Stem Cell or Bone Marrow Transplantation, New Treatment Approaches. Um, this is a program that we are delighted to be offering. I have to say that it's the first time we've offered a program simply focusing on GVHD, and um, it's a program that we're doing in collaboration with many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well. And because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic, we have over 471 participants on the call today. So you're a very large group of people, and I have to say um, you're clearly a group of information seekers. And we have international participants from Canada, India, Singapore, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. The majority of participants are from the United States, but we do have these wonderful participants as well from other countries um, as well. So um, thank you all for being on the call. Today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Marcus Mapara. Dr. Mapara is Professor of Medicine, Columbia University Medical Center. He's Director, Blood and Marrow Transplantation Program, College of Physicians and Surgeons. And Dr. Mapara is going to be addressing an overview of graft-versus-host disease, GVHD, post-allogenetic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, understanding how GVHD develops, including finding GVHD early, and common signs and symptoms of GVHD. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Mapara, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mapara. Yeah, thanks so much, Carolyn. And I also would like to thank Cancer Care for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to uh, talk about uh, graft-versus-host uh, um, disease today. Um, so uh, it is important to, to remember that uh, there are certain differences which are important to understand GVHD when we compare bone marrow transplant to solid organ transplant. So when you do a solid organ transplant, like a kidney transplant, the major problem which uh, patients really encounter is that their body will reject the transplanted organ. In bone marrow transplant, um, the situation is more complex because you are really transferring the immune system of the donor into the recipient. And so there are, in fact, two um, uh, potential possibilities of rejection happening. So as in the solid organ transplant, the recipient may reject the, um, uh, the bone marrow graft or the stem cell graft, but uh, the problem which we are facing more frequently is that uh, the immune system of the donor, which, as I mentioned, we're transferring into the recipient, uh, has the ability to recognize the, um, the recipient as foreign and to attack the, um, the patient. And that is really one of the major uh, problems uh, we are facing on a clinical perspective. And there are two um, uh, important parts which really drive this, uh, uh, the development of graft-versus-host disease. The one is, as I mentioned, what is called alloreactivity, so that um, the donor cells are different from the recipient and therefore attack the, the, the recipient's uh, organs. And uh, that also is um, indicated by the fact that so the more the donor and the recipient are distinct, the higher the risk of developing this graft-versus-host disease. So the interaction of you know, a certain type of immune cell called the antigen-presenting cells, uh, which are from the recipient, with the donor T cells, which are the major drivers in this graft-versus-host disease, are really setting the stage to, to activate this graft-versus-host disease. The second very important component of GVHD, in addition to this alloreactivity, is that the patient has, unto, has to undergo a preparative treatment, uh, conditioning treatment, which leads to um, or potential organ damage and, most importantly, also to some damage of the gut, which leads to uh, release of inflammatory mediators, which then enter the circulation of the recipient and then lead to an inflammatory response throughout the body, which together with uh, the uh, already mentioned activation of the donor T cells by the host tissues, then really starts this vicious circle of graft-versus-host disease. Once the, the donor cells have been fully activated, 
um, they then have the ability to uh, migrate and uh, invade the, the classical organs um, uh, affected by GBHD. And uh, these are primarily the gut, uh, the liver, and the skin. And uh, the, um, the organ tropism um, is one of the, the, the key features of acute GBHD. And it's important also in preparation of the talk of Dr. Chen to uh, uh, make the distinction that uh, GBHD really comes in two flavors, in acute GBHD, which is really this acute inflammatory response, which I uh, described, and then at a later time point, in the form of chronic GBHD, which is more an autoimmune phenomenon. And Dr. Chen will talk more about the distinction between those two uh, processes. Um, it is important to remember that uh, acute GBHD is uh, a very frequent uh, complication. So in, uh, in the best matched setting, so a matched sibling, you still have a chance of 35, 30, 35% uh, percent of developing this graft with host disease, but it can be much higher when you use unrelated uh, um, donors. The um, uh, other important uh, factors, which uh, I think are especially relevant from a, from a perspective now in terms of uh, trying to mitigate the development of GBHD, is uh, uh, is it possible to really predict the development of graft-versus-host disease, and are there ways of um, <clears throat> then uh, preventing the development of GVHD? And I think that's where a lot of the research is going now, that you really want to try to not wait until GVHD has developed, but that you want to catch it early. And um, the, um, the ways of uh, predicting uh, GVHD are to some extent uh, based on clinical factors. So if you have, for example, uh, already also alluded to patients um, who have a highly mismatched donor, you have a higher risk of developing GVHD than if you have a, a very well-matched donor. Sex mismatching is an important factor in uh, uh, driving GVHD. So therefore, if you have a, a <coughs> female donor and a male recipient, so this is uh, setting the stage for potentially increased risk of GVHD. Another important factor which influences the development of GVHD is what type of uh, cells are you using for the transplant. So it is known that, for example, if you use peripheral blood stem cells, that you have a higher risk of uh, GVHD than if you use bone marrow uh, as, a, as a graft source. And um, another factor which is uh, also known to uh, affect the development of GVHD is how intensive is the preparative regimen. So, um, and that goes back to the, to the fact which I had mentioned at the beginning, that this inflammatory response caused by conditioning damaging, conditioning therapy is, of course, more intense if you use something which is called a myeloblative regimen, so which is high-dose chemotherapy or radiation, and that this damage is less severe if you have reduced-intensity conditioning or even what is called non-ablative regimen. So these are very important uh, factors just based on the, uh, um, um, the clinical presentation of the patient, which would predict the development of uh, or put would give you the risk factors for development of GVHD. Other factors um, which are now currently on, in research is, are there biomarkers which are potentially possible, which would allow us early on, so markers in the blood, which would allow us to uh, predict development of GVHD actually before it actually manifests itself. And so there are a number of ways of doing that, and so far there has not been a clear consensus, but there are certain blood markers which have been identified by several centers, uh, which would allow the prediction of graft-versus-host disease and also potentially the severity of graft-versus-host disease. And these studies, I think, are very important to further then uh, reduce the incidence of, uh, of GVHD. Um, so I think that is, in my perspective, the major um, points which I wanted to raise. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mapara. That was really excellent and very informative and I think provides everyone a very clearer picture about GVHT and um, some of the um, it's just very, very good, very good um, uh, comments and issues and I think there'll be very, lots of questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Eben Chen. Dr. Chen is Director, Blood and Marrow Transplant Program. Kara J. Rogers Endowed Scholar, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Chen is going to present types of GBHD, chronic and acute, current standard of care for managing GBHD, and new and promising treatment approaches for GBHD post-allogenetic or bone marrow transplantation. 
It's now my pleasure to turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chen. Thank you very much, Carolyn. <laughs> and I want to echo what uh, Dr. Mapara said in thanking Cancer Care and the organizers of this conference. Um, I think uh, patient education, at least for people who have gone through this or are about to undergo this, is paramount uh, to coping and also to uh, e emerging from such complications eventually. Um, so my my task here is is a bit broad. Uh, it is to sort of discuss uh, more the types of graft-versus-host disease being acute and chronic, and then touch touch a bit on the standards of therapy and new and emerging therapies. And it's a it's a it's a, fortunately a rapidly changing world at this point. Um, as Dr. Makara had uh talked about there are really two flavors of graft versus host disease we see after allogeneic transplant uh one is acute graft versus host disease and the other being chronic acute graft versus host disease generally occurs in the first 6 months after transplant although it certainly can occur later uh and at, at this point these days the distinction between the two types is purely made by clinical manifestations but acute graft-versus-host disease generally involves uh, three organs, uh, most commonly the skin appearing as a red, angry skin rash. Uh, the second most common organ is uh, the gastrointestinal tract, and it can manifest in the upper areas as nausea or lack of appetite that is not responsive to certain uh, our supportive medications. <coughs> and more importantly, the manifestation in the GI tract is uh, diarrhea, which can be very severe uh, and can be up to many multiple liters of diarrhea a day. And certainly uh, that is the most common reason to result in readmission after transplant. And often patients are in the hospital for several weeks to recover. The third organ that can be involved in acute graft-versus-host disease is the liver, and in general, when we diagnose it, it's, it, it is asymptomatic, and we find it because we are checking the liver function tests in the blood, uh, and that is the least common manifestation. Um, and I'll, I'll go on with acute GVHD to talk about uh, treatment for acute GVHD before I talk about uh, chronic graft-versus-host disease. So. The treatments, the treatment for acute GVHD, the the first drug we generally, or the first class of drugs we generally still use, and it hasn't changed uh, over the last, I would say, 30 years, is high dose steroids. Steroids being uh, very powerful anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, such as prednisone or its equivalents, given either intravenously or orally. Uh, steroids do uh, do work. Uh, they work in about half of patients with acute graft-versus-host disease in being able to uh, quell the disease and eventually be able to taper steroids and have a durable response. The problem is that it doesn't work in the other half before we have to add other drugs. And the bigger problem is, I think, the morbidity of steroids uh, for many patients who have been on them for a long time. Uh, and this will touch on chronic graft-versus-host disease too. You know, the side effects range from uh, cataracts to bone health to blood pressure to diabetes to muscle wasting, and that doesn't even touch on the added immune system weakening and predisposition to infections uh, that steroids do bring about. Um, and that's why a lot of research at this point is being done. A lot of research has been attempted to be done over the last couple of decades in trying to improve treatment of graft-versus-host disease uh, to not only make it better, uh, but also to move it away uh, from as much steroid-based treatment as possible because of all those issues with steroids. So for right now, uh, the standard of care remains uh, high-dose steroids first uh, with the hope that if patients are able to respond satisfactorily, we can taper them down uh, very quickly uh, and uh, move on. Uh, the other pathways that we're investigating now are interesting. Uh, we're looking at graft-versus-host disease or shall I say, historically in the past, it was always thought that this was donor cells attacking the host body, as, as Dr. Mapara mentioned. And while that uh, certainly is true and where where the process starts, a lot of uh, theory on graft-versus-host disease these days says that while that starts the process, perhaps when we're eventually treating it or weeks after we started steroids, perhaps the immune system uh, activity has already stopped. And what we're left with is a lot of uh, inflammation uh, in different pathways or end organ injury. And so much of the newer therapies that we're moving forward with these days are less uh, what we call globally immunosuppressive, meaning less weakening of the immune system, uh, but more anti-inflammatory and also looking at different 
non-traditional pathways to be able to target graft-versus-host disease without all of the side effects that traditional treatments had. I think the exciting approaches in acute graft-versus-host disease include classes of drugs uh, called JAK inhibitors, which are looking at certain pathways of inflammation. Uh, there are other classes of drugs that are targeting what we call uh, lymphocyte trafficking molecules, meaning uh, controlling where the white blood cells go and not affecting their function. These have been proven and studied in diseases like inflammatory bowel disease and multiple sclerosis. And other inflammatory, other anti-inflammatory um, treatments such as uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is a protein that given at high doses can ameliorate inflammation. And also things that, uh, such as uh, photophoresis, which is a common treatment for chronic graft-versus-host disease that's slowly being moved towards the, uh, in the acute realm because of its non-immunosuppressive action. We're actually, it's interesting, uh, companies uh, have not been traditionally interested in graft-versus-host disease because of uh, sort of the market and the rarity of the disease, but we've actually find ourselves, for those of us who do these clinical trials, we find ourselves in an age where companies are actually very interested and uh, it's allowing us to move forward in doing very interesting clinical trials. I'm going to move on to chronic graft-versus-host disease uh, where the uh, clinical manifestations are a bit more heterogeneous. Uh, it can affect almost any organ, the most common being the eyes, the mouth, and the skin. It's called chronic because it is much more indolent than acute, meaning slowly moving. And when we do start treating it, uh, the, the treatment can certainly take a longer time to respond, and uh, treat, patients are on treatment for a much longer period of time. Certainly, patients who uh, have chronic graft-versus-host disease can be on, can have these problems be lifelong and be on medicines for the rest of their lives. There are other patients who the, the disease does respond very well, and we're able to get off medicines and. Uh, become symptom-free, and there are also patients who the disease uh, causes some damage, and then it uh, it becomes a bit fixed, and it doesn't worsen uh, anymore. Uh, First-line treatment for chronic graft-versus-host disease also is steroids. The steroids are lower than what we give for acute, and they're generally given orally at, on an outpatient basis. Uh, certainly, if the manifestations are just affecting uh, one organ, uh, specifically eyes, skin, or mouth, we try and get away with what we call topical or localized treatments, being eye drops for the eyes, mouth rinses for the mouth, and skin creams for the skin. Certainly, if it is apparent that it becomes a systemic disease, meaning affecting multiple organs, or uh, then, then we certainly have to move on to systemic therapy, usually uh, giving oral agents. Um, Unfortunately, like acute GVHD, the, the mainstay of first-line treatment, again, still remains steroids, and since patients are on these treatments for a long time for chronic graft-versus-host disease, they oftentimes do feel the brunt of the steroids in terms of side effects and a big impetus going forward for all of our survivors of chronic graft-versus-host disease is to, is to minimize uh, these side effects uh, through supportive measures but also find treatments that can not only be effective but also uh, allow the tapering of the steroids eventually to come off. Uh, the issue is not only the side effects of steroids uh, but certainly uh, the infections that they predispose patients to. Chronic graft-versus-host disease has been tough to make progress in, just so people understand, because the disease is so heterogeneous and so different in people that it is difficult to do clinical trials when everyone is a bit different. Uh, the, the, thus, the disease is also tough to uh, guide response and grade. Uh, it is not just like getting a scan and seeing if certain lymph nodes or tumors are shrinking. Uh, a lot of the disease is subjective based on symptoms, and the assessments are very difficult to do based on different organs. And so getting a large trial with a lot of patients has, uh, has been difficult, and that's the nature uh, of this disease. But we are determined to try and move forward uh, and find better treatments. The newer treatments are exciting. As many of you know, um, we had the first ever approval uh, for a drug or an agent in any type of graft-versus-host disease, and that was ibrutinib, uh, which is a pill that was approved for steroid refractory chronic graft-versus-host disease. certainly uh, is an exciting uh, move forward. It bespeaks to uh, the unmet need that we have and the new attitude of the FDA to help support our research efforts and also to help make, hopefully, uh, newer drugs more available to patients. Uh, the other agents that we, again, very similar to acute, we're trying to use agents in chronic graft-versus-host disease that are less immune system weakening, but also target different inflammatory pathways and hopefully try and turn around chronic graft-versus-host disease without affecting the immune system so much. 
The exciting agents include uh, ibrutinib, obviously, with its approval. Uh, it, it is now also being studied uh, in the upfront setting with steroids in hopes that it will make the early responses better and also allow people to get off steroids quicker. Uh, the JAK inhibitors, again, are another class of drugs that also being studied in acute, but also have shown clear activity in chronic, and there are ongoing multiple clinical trials. Uh, with probably, uh, we look forward to a JAK inhibitor being approved uh, for chronic GVH uh, in the near future. I think uh, photophoresis or ECP certainly has had its place in chronic GVHD for a long time and uh, certainly continues to be a mainstay, although logistically and financially is often hard to do for patients and families. And then we're looking at all kinds of other agents, again, with different pathways. Some of these include uh, things like IL-2, which are shots that naturally target different pathways to, again, are anti-inflammatory and uh, possibly raising uh, a type of T-cells called regulatory T-cells to calm things down and looking at other pathways that stop fibrosis. So we are in an age where it's very exciting. I think we are at the at the precipice of moving graft-versus-host disease prevention and treatment forward by big steps. And, um, you know, I thank all of, our, all of our patients for bearing with us for the time being, but we hope to be able to improve the treatment uh, in the very near future. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Dr. Chen. That was really outstanding and wonderful. Uh, lots of information for people, and, um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Nandita Kara, and Dr. Kara is a consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic, and Assistant Professor of Medicine, College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kara is going to present the role of clinical trials, how research increases treatment options, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about life with GBHD post-allogenetic or bone marrow transplantation. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kara. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, thank you to Cancer Care for this opportunity. Um, I would like to congratulate the two earlier speakers for setting the background for this third portion of the talk. Um, as you all know, clinical trials have helped advance science by moving science, scientific discoveries from bench to bedside. Um, behind every medicine and intervention that has been developed in medicine, there are thousands of patients who have volunteered to participate in clinical trials. I do want to point out here that clinical trials are a small portion of the overall research umbrella because research is a broader term that includes but is not limited to observational studies, basic science projects, and clinical trials in addition to other kinds of studies. In graft-versus-host disease, uh, research has definitely helped us improve our understanding of the pathogenesis, the basic biology that underlies uh, graft-versus-host disease, and that has helped us to work on new treatment approaches so that we can target specific mechanisms and pathways to, to try and uh, get good outcomes. Um, research has also helped us understand the benefits and risks of the existing treatments so that the clinicians can choose the best possible treatment for their patients. And finally, um, research has helped us understand that it is not just the clinical outcomes, but also patient-reported outcomes and other things such as healthcare utilization that we need to look at carefully um, before deciding the effectiveness of treatments. As most of you do realize, it is not a very frequent complication and so there are challenges in conducting studies in the area. Um, there have been issues with institutional biases. There have been challenges in graft-versus-host disease staging and long-standing practices which have been based on the center expertise or resources that may be difficult to change. However, to, to try and overcome some of these challenges, um, multi-center consortiums have come together to try and do research in this area, and I think that has really helped advance to move the field forward. Um, these consortiums have helped standardize the collection of the complex clinical data that is needed for research. Um, they have collected rich uh, patient-reported outcomes uh, about uh, quality of life and other issues. And overall, their goal has been to improve care of uh, uh, these patients. Two examples that I would like to highlight for this are the MAGIC Consortium, uh, which is the Mount Sinai Acute GVHD International Consortium, and Chronic GVHD Consortium. Um, both of these consortiums have been working really hard in order to meet their goals. Um, in addition to that, there is the, the uh, bone marrow transplant registry, uh, which has a working committee that has done studies related to the biology, prevention, and treatment of graft-versus-host disease using the registry data and uh, also enhanced our understanding. 
I, I do want to mention a little bit about the endpoints for research in the area for, for the clinical studies that are done in the area. So if the study is for prevention of GVHD, most often what has been used is occurrence of graft-versus-host disease, and that may include occurrence of any GVHD, or it may include occurrence of severe, a higher-grade GVHD, uh, which has shown clinical significance because of its increased risk with mortality. For treatment trials, survival obviously has been one of the major uh, endpoints that have been looked at, um, but also freedom from graft-versus-host disease manifestations, treatment and complications, improvement in symptom burden, function, and quality of life is what have, have been used. So how does research increase treatment options? Dr. Chen already mentioned uh, treatment, new treatment options, both for acute and chronic GVHD, that are definitely exciting. Um, I want to highlight two examples here to show how clinical studies help. And uh, th these two studies are a little bit different in the sense the first one that I want to mention, it's called post-state study, which is a prospective data collection study that is looking at um, use of the extracorporeal photophoresis for second-line treatment of acute graft-versus-host disease. And it's an international collaborative study that is looking at not just the survival and clinical outcomes, but also patient-reported outcomes and healthcare utilization, such as ER visits, length of hospital stay, and so forth. So hopefully, the data collected from the study can, can show us if, if there is a subgroup of patients in which ECP is a better option, uh, and how does it really impact the other things, just not survival. The other um, trial that I want to mention, which Dr. Chen already highlighted, is the Ibrutinib trial, which recently led to the FDA approval for the first treatment ever for chronic graft-versus-host disease. As you know, um, this trial was a multi-center trial that looked at patients with active graft-versus-host disease who were not responding to um, their current treatments. And this trial had 42 patients um, who were treated with the ibrutinib until their GVHD progressed. And basically what it showed was about 67% overall response rate. There was a decrease in the steroid use. And the, the investigators also looked at not just the clinical outcomes, but also the biochemical tests that would have gone along with the GVHD activity that showed response also over time. So that is what led to the approval of um, this medicine um, for treatment of adult patients with chronic GVHD who had failed one or more lines of systemic treatment. Um, now I would like to shift gears and move to the second piece that I have been asked to cover, which is what are the key questions that you, you should ask your healthcare team about if you have graft-versus-host disease? Um, so I, I would like to say that these questions might change as you go through or as the GVHD evolves, but in general, I think what, what needs to be understood better is the disease itself. So where, what organs are being affected? How severe is the disease? Um, so those kind of questions to be asked from your healthcare team are totally appropriate. In addition, um, I would suggest asking comprehensively about treatment options. What are the side effects? What are the benefits? What are the logistic implications? Um, that would make it clear for you if, if one particular treatment is better for you um, than uh, others. In addition, I, I would say that um, it's very appropriate to ask questions about long-term outlook. How long would you be on treatment for? What does it, what does, how does it impact your daily activities? Uh, what can you do to help improve your quality of life? Um, those kind of questions, again, can give you a sense of, um, since especially with chronic GVHD, which is more a chronic issue um, that can have an impact on the mor morbidity, it is very essential to get that information. Um, in addition, I also would suggest asking questions about employment and financial issues because these are the problems that we have seen that, that have happened in the later um, time periods. And so it, if it would help you plan better by getting that information right at the uh, outset of gra uh, graft-versus-host disease, that might help improve your overall um, quality of life and your clinical outcomes. I would like to mention here also, in addition to the cancer care um, resources, which I think Kelly is going to talk about later, um, there are uh, 
a lot of information, uh, fact sheets from uh, National Mayor Donor Program, Be the Match uh, website. Um, there are chronic GVHD uh, fact sheets about uh, dry eye, um, chronic GVHD of the lungs, um, and there will be new ones coming uh, based on what the patients have told us are, are topics that they would like to know about. Um, as uh, Dr. Chen and Dr. Mabara alluded to, this is an exciting time. There are definitely um, ad advancements going on in the field, which we hope can help in um, not just uh, treating, but also preventing the occurrence of graft-versus-host disease. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Kara. That was really wonderful, and actually uh, lots of good uh, tips for people in terms of um, really how to communicate with the healthcare team, um, things that they can do. Um, so this is really wonderful. Thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she's clinical supervisor at Cancer Care. And she will be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to transfer over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'd like to thank everyone on the call. I think we've gotten a lot of good information today. So as Dr. Messner said, uh, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and I work with uh, a lot of people who may be trying to manage this um, and their care and their quality of life. And so I'd like to really talk about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. So a little about us, uh, we're a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone who is affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We provide that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then also on the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally and also online, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one that we're on today. We also provide practical help, so assistance navigating the healthcare system, and we do have some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and as I said before, completely free of charge. And an oncology social worker really is trained in how the diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so how it affects the support network. You know, we're trained to help patients and their supports tackle problems that accompany the disease. So financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and just overall psychological impact and care, and really adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. You know, cancer affects the whole person, so it of course affects your body, but it affects all the other areas of your life too. And so, you know, getting that support can be huge. Asking for help, whether you're joining a support group, contacting a social worker for counseling is a strength. You know, I really want to stress to everyone on the call today that you don't have to do this alone. You know, if you join a support group, you can connect with others who may be going through something similar or experiencing similar uh, problems. With individual counseling, you have a space that's yours to voice any of the concerns or navigate any of the issues that I had mentioned earlier. And the connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Again, if you're feeling well um, emotionally, that may be able to help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, we're offering uh, support groups for a, a range um, of uh, clients, so we can help patients, caregivers, that's both face-to-face, -face, telephone, and online. Our online support groups also have groups that are specific to blood cancers, um, so just know that as well. If you're interested in any of our programs, you know, please contact us. You can reach us on our HOPE line, and that's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. You can also visit our website. We have a very comprehensive website. There's a lot of information, not only on support, uh, but actually on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis, treatment, and just ways of coping as you go through this. You know, we got a lot of information today. I think we've learned a lot from the program. It's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. We're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. You know, if you have any questions about 
the workshop or any of our services, you know, don't hesitate to contact us. And then lastly, you know, please remember you're not alone in this. You do not have to walk the path alone. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kelly. That was really wonderful and just really so informative to everyone and, and lots of good resources here and, and really um you know, just do take advantage of these resources at Cancer Care and all the other resources that you'll be sending you. And when you get the evaluation, I'll be getting all these other resources that you can contact. So when when Ms. Kelly said that you don't have to feel alone, you don't. You have your healthcare team and then you have all these resources that are there really at your fingertips. Um so okay. And now we have time for questions. I want to thank our speakers because you've all actually um, really um made that that possible. So now we're gonna take questions from our audience. I'm gonna ask um, Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board, and then Ayala, would you explain to the audience how to queue up for questions? And um, and we'll um, we'll we'll proceed then to take. And we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question, then we will actually I will let you know at the end how to get your questions answered. Okay, Ayala. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. So we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and this question, um, I'm going to um, start with Dr. Kara to address it. Um, so the question is, um, my mother has chronic GVHD of the skin that makes her very itchy. Her doctor took her off all immunosuppressants because she has a occurrence of breast cancer. Is another drug that she should look at that wouldn't suppress her immune system like steroids? So this, of course, is a very specific question. And from Dr. Kara, if you could address this question in a general way um, so that um, others may have uh, similar questions or concerns. And um, if we could start with you addressing it, and then I may ask the other speakers as well to add to it, but um, if you want to start with this. Um, sure, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, that is the problem with most of our chronic GVHD treatments, that they are immunosuppressive and therefore increase the risk not only for infection, but also um, secondary cancers. And if, if another cancer is already ongoing, um, there is definitely risk for it being um, uh, more uh, or worse, uh, performing worse because of the underlying immunosuppression. Um, I, I don't think any of the studies have specifically looked at um, using any specific immunosuppressant in patients with active malignancy, but I would think that um, ECP um, or photophoresis is one of the modalities of treatment which has not much in terms of immunosuppressive effects. Um, again, there there is no data available as to how it would um, affect if there is an ongoing cancer, but I would think um, that that might be an option. Um, and then some of the other agents that um, may work a little bit differently, um, depending on how severe that uh, the graft-versus-host disease is, um, it can be discussed with um, uh, their, the healthcare team. Um, I also want to mention here that there is actually a, the Chronic GVHD Consortium has a web-based uh, uh, program by which the clinicians can reach out to the other clinicians uh, in order to help uh, get help with some of these difficult questions. So I would encourage um, your mother's physician to maybe reach out to to that uh, forum and uh, see if he can uh, if they can get some uh, good answers from there. Excellent. And um, Dr. Um, uh, Chan or Dr. Mapar, do you wish to add um, any? I would basically agree with everything with um, Dr. Kara said. I mean, uh, on top, you know, in addition to ECP, you could consider just uh, topical treatments as well, uh, even like simple uh, uh, treatments like you know anti-itching creams, um, some topical steroids as well, to really try to avoid the systemic uh, immune suppression. Um, so that would be just one point to add. Okay, um, and. Um so our next question um, is, is for Dr. Chen, online question. What is IL-2 injection mentioned by Dr. Chen? If you could say a bit more about that, Dr. Chen. Yeah, absolutely. IL-2 stands for interleukin-2. It's a uh, protein that um, 
is naturally made in your body. It's a uh, it's called a cytokine, but uh, it is a it is a protein that is increased in your body when your T cells or a type of white blood cells are activated uh, to responding. And it's interesting. Um, the if you look back about 20 years, uh, there at, at that time there were IL-2 blockers being developed for the treatment of acute graft-versus-host disease, and they actually did help a good uh, percentage of patients, though there are issues with those drugs, and they never, uh, we don't use them as much anymore. Uh, my colleagues over, I'm at Mass General, my colleagues over at Dana-Farber have led the effort in, in using low doses of actually giving IL-2. If you use low doses, you actually don't encourage uh, activation of your T cells in a bad way, but if you use low doses every day, you seem to encourage a type of T cell called regulatory T cells. Now, regulatory T cells are a type of white blood cell that calms down the immune system. And, you know, our immune systems are complicated and they are run by a series of signals that causes them to go and others that cause them to stop. And regulatory T cells participate in the interactions that will cause immune responses to stop. And they're being studied in a wide variety of diseases, including graft-versus-host disease. So low doses of IL-2, which are given as daily injections under the skin, seem to be able to encourage your regulatory T cells to um, expand. And in some patients, it has really helped their graft-versus-host disease. Now, it is not an approved treatment. It is still an investigational treatment being studied in clinical trials, and so it it, it is not available uh, commercially. Or if the, if your institution or your uh, your doctor's institution does not have does not do the clinical trials, it certainly uh, would not be something that's readily available. I only mentioned it as one of the research directions and investigations that we are moving in that are actively being studied. Thank you, you. Um, and we have a, a telephone question, um, I believe, Ayala. Sorry, we don't have a telephone question. Oh, okay. Excellent. Okay. Then we have another online question, um, and um, the um, the question is, um, and I'm going to give that question to um, um, to uh, Dr. Mapara. I was diagnosed with GVHD, and I'm worried about the medication causing kidney and liver damage. Are there other treatment options? Well, and the, um, there obviously are, you know, as I mentioned and as Dr. Um, Chen mentioned, the mainstay of um, uh, graft-versus-host disease treatment really is um, is uh, are steroids, and that is uh, nothing has been shown to be superior to um, to steroids in really treating GVHD. Um, the question also then relates to prevention or just for the treatment. Um, it looks like. Um It looks like it was a general question. Um, so the, uh, one uh, obviously concern is in terms of, let's say, organ damage is what type of um, chemotherapy uh, or uh, treatment you're getting uh, as a preparative regimen. And so those can be um, potentially tailored to avoid um, medications or chemotherapy drugs, which may be less damaging to the, um, to the liver if patients already have pre-existing uh, liver uh, issues, but in terms of GVHD, really the best treatment and with uh, the least acute side effects really are the steroids. Obviously, as we all know, and Dr. Kara and Dr. Chen mentioned, what we really f uh, fear are the long-term problems of long-term steroids. That is something which we really try to add on other drugs, but steroids in particular as the first line of um, GVHD treatment are not necessarily that damaging to the liver. It's more the long-term use of the steroids. Oh, thank you. And a question for Dr. Chen, which I, Dr. Chen addressed, but are the signs and symptoms of for chronic and acute GVHD the same? If you could just um, address that. Uh, for chronic and acute, was that the question? Yes. yes. Uh, they are not. They, the distinction of acute and chronic uh, is purely made by clinical manifestations. So they somewhat mentioned acute is uh, a very red uh, skin rash that can affect uh, any part of the body. The, the classic areas are the nape of the neck, the ears, the upper chest, but certainly can be a full body rash as well. Uh, in the GI tract, it's mostly diarrhea. Uh, some 
Some cases can also be uh, nausea and lack of appetite, and then in the liver, it's mainly liver function test abnormalities. And that, in general, is acute graft-versus-host disease, though, as you can imagine, all of those uh, signs and symptoms are nonspecific. We've all had those things for different reasons, and so it's up to you and your treating team to figure out what is what. Chronic graft-versus-host disease is different. It doesn't come on as fast and doesn't resolve as fast if treatment is successful. Uh, the rash is not an angry red skin rash. It, it, it can take many forms. It can look more like psoriasis or eczema. It is still very symmetrical, just like acute is, but it also can be very itchy and so forth. It has a scaly component to it, though the rash can take many appearances. Uh, the eyes and mouth are not often involved in acute as well, but definitely very commonly involved in chronic. Both of those are mainly uh, dryness, both eyes and mouth, uh, as well as the mouth can be ulcerations and uh, so forth. Uh, and then I sort of skipped over mentioning a lot of the manifestations are chronic because they can affect almost any organ. But uh, the common manifestations, again, being eyes, mouth, and skin. And then after that, certainly uh, joints can be swollen and have fluid and can also ache. Your muscles can have cramps and can also ache. Uh, lungs can often be inflamed, uh, and you can be short of breath or have a cough. Um, the liver tests, again, can be also up in the blood, but they tend to have a little bit of a different pattern than an acute graft-versus-host disease. Um, and, the, and the GI tract can be involved, but uh, if it is, it's generally uh, problem swallowing from strictures of the esophagus uh, or chronic diarrhea, not not from inflammation of the actual GI tract, but perhaps from malabsorption of lack of enzymes from the pancreas. Uh, so they are thought to be different uh, immune system uh, processes. Um, and then, again, since these are diseases that we, in fact, did not invent but only are trying to classify, there are always going to be patients who may fall in the middle. Uh, and have features of both. Excellent. Thank you very much. And uh, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so the question, and I'm going to give that question to Dr. Mapara, if you could address this um, to start. Um, my daughter recently passed away due to GVHD of the gut, and we're so sorry to hear that, um, our sympathies. And she received cells from a male donor, which she have had a better chance had it been a female donor. Can address this in a general way, Dr. Mapara, and again, our yeah. So, so the um, as I mentioned, sex matching is a, um, uh, is a is a factor. However, usually it's considered the other way around. So, therefore, if it would have been basically a male recipient who had received a female graft, that would be more relevant than uh, um, receiving uh, basically a male graft here. So, in that particular um, circumstance, the uh, the sex is usually not that much of an of an impact. I see, so it's not as much of an issue for a woman versus, is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, so basically, so the, the the mechanism why sex mismatch plays a role is that, you know, um, women are based on their chromosomes uh, XX and men are XY, and um, the immune system of um, um, female donors obviously is not um, uh, familiar with all the proteins uh, encoded by the Y uh, chromosome. So therefore, all Y chromosome uh, encoded proteins are potentially recognized by, by female donor cells. So that is a very well-known and long-term factor of driving uh, graft-versus-host disease, which is called a minor antigen. There are so-called major antigens, which, are, uh, which you're all familiar with, which is the HLA typing, where we look for, in the ideal setting, for 12 out of 12 matching. Um, and if we have the opportunity of also doing sex matching, we'll try to do this. But otherwise, it's, uh, uh, it's frequently not possible. Okay, thank you. And Ms. Cole, do you want to comment on the loss of the, um, the mother, daughter, um, and just um, some of the how challenging that is, obviously? Yeah, so I mean, that is something, of course, which we, I mean, and I, again, my, my condolences, that is uh, one of the really the, the dark sides of, of bone marrow transplant that we are faced with, with those, you know, very existential situations, you know, where loved ones pass away, and which is always, always terrible also for the entire transplant team. Uh, uh, which is frequently, in fact, a big stressor for the, the nurses and the inpatient units and the, the, all of the providers. So we really uh, absolutely uh, you know, share that pain, which uh, is like losing a family member. So it's really one of the, the things which, over time, you still are not able to uh, process well, even if you do bone marrow transplant that I do for 20 years. 
Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Mopar, thank you. And uh, Ms. Kelly, do you want to comment on just the, um, some of the things that we see here in helping people with these kinds of losses? So I mean it's a it's a really difficult loss, I think, because it's you know not only are you going through sort of the standard treatments, then to have the transplant is a lot to go through, um, which we just discussed. And so you know to have a loss related to that uh, is very difficult. Uh, what I would stress is uh, be gentle with yourself as you're going through it. I would also stress reaching out for supports as you need to. Um, for some people, that means reaching out to their loved ones or their communities. Um, some people do prefer to reach out um, in terms of getting professional counseling, and we are here in terms of that, so please know that you can call us. And we also have um, bereavement support groups, so just know that. You know, If you are someone who would like to reach out outside of friends, family, community, that we're here and we're ready to be part of that community. And Ms. Kelly, could you also comment on how often when one is bereaved that one feels if only we had done this, um, it might oh, be absolutely. you could just comment on that? Because I think that yeah, so it is universal, I think, uh, in terms of loss. Uh, anyone who's grieving kind of goes through the what-ifs or what I sometimes call, you know, the woulda, coulda, shouldas. That's normal. It's just how our brain is trying to wrap its, uh, itself or how we wrap our minds around how did this happen. Um, so just know that it's normal. I do think, especially if you're having a lot of that, that it helps to talk it through with someone, um, to, to verbalize it and, and put it out there and then have that, um, that person be there as a support. It's, it's a lot. Is a lot, and we really encourage you to go ahead and contact us, and, and we'll try to reach out to you as well. Um, so thank you for that, for your question, and we hope this, these comments is, um, have been helpful to you. Um, we have a question from um, another um, one of our online participants. Um, So the question, after this question, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Chen. After getting a bone marrow transplant, I have developed GVHG. Will GVHG cause permanent damage? Uh, that's a that's a question that uh, I face all the time when uh, seeing my patients. Uh, the real truthful answer is I don't know. Um, it uh, a lot of it depends on the specifics of your case, so it's certainly difficult to answer um, in broad brush strokes. Um, there certainly are people uh, who have graft-versus-host disease that we are able to treat and uh, end the inflammatory process, and there is no permanent damage. Certainly acute GVHD, uh, while more aggressive and more acute, it generally does respond faster as well, and if you're able to fix it, uh, hopefully it can be generally fixed. Um, though oftentimes you are on medications for several months afterwards that do take their toll. Chronic graft-versus-host disease is a bit different. While it takes, uh, it happens more slowly, it does take longer to respond and it does last longer. Um, in general, chronic graft-versus-host disease, uh, depending on the type you have, uh, generally will leave, uh, will leave its mark. Uh, we hope that it is not a mark that certainly contributes significantly to quality of life in the long run. Um, but uh, it is uh, it is not uncommon for that to happen. I hope that's an okay answer there. Thank you very much. And actually, you know, um, these programs are a wonderful way to try a question out. And then we do often recommend that, of course, you go back to your treating healthcare team. And our hope is that the information you've received will help you to ask the question more competently and perhaps ask a more informed question just because you've tried it out here. Good question. We know that all your questions are wonderful questions. And your healthcare team then can help as well. And that applies to all the questions asked today, but, but particularly for this one as well. And we do have another question um, from one of our online participants. And I'm going to ask Dr. Um, Kara if you could address this question. Um, and the question is, um, what is the connection between sun's UV rays and GVHD? Is there a connection? Um, yes. Uh, so, um, I 
don't know of the study um, off the top of my head. Maybe Dr. Chen and Dr. Mapara can comment on if they know of exact studies. Um, but theoretically, we do know that um, it does increase the risk of um, graft-versus-host disease in patients by increasing the sort of the immune process. Um, and um, so that's why we um, tell our patients to, to try and avoid the sun not only for GVHD prevention, but also because um, skin cancers are commonest cancer after after transplant, and so sun exposure is obviously one of the major risk factors for that. So, so uh, we we do tell them to use sunscreens, avoid sun exposure by um, protective equipment, um, to not just decrease the risk of GVHD, but also skin cancers. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Um, Chen, do you want to add to that? Uh, no, I agree with everything Dr. Kara said. I think certainly uh, it, it is both what we're worried about is triggering graft-versus-host disease. Uh, basically, any inflammation in the body can uh, excite the immune system locally and trigger a response in that organ. And so the, the skin is no exception to that. If you do get a sunburn or even a suntan, it, it triggers that's injury and it triggers uh, inflammation and white blood cells going to the skin and can trigger graft-versus-host disease. We've certainly seen that many times, uh, both acute and chronic. Uh, and and also the sun exposure certainly uh, does predispose long-term along with the weakening of the immune system to uh, certain skin cancers. So we do educate our patients continually about the need to protect themselves from the sun, absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Mapar, did you want to add anything as well? So this is in fact a very well known uh, phenomenon, and which you know has been studied even in, in in experimental systems. That, as Dr. Chen just mentioned, any inflammation of uh, um, uh, the recipient, be it in the skin, or also what uh, we sometimes see if patient develops a, um, an infection of the gut, that may trigger GI GVHD. So any inflammation can really activate the uh, the donor's immune cell and trigger GVHD. Excellent. Wow. This is, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. I, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, just really wonderful speakers. I also want to thank our participants today for asking really such excellent and thoughtful questions, which really do, I have to say, expand the program and allow our speakers to, to further elaborate on important issues that each of you are confronting and are concerned about. Um, you know, I think that... Um, as we conclude the program today, I want to, first of all, I know there are many more questions that you have, so I want to give you some resources to get your questions answered. So uh, first of all, of course, I, we don't ever want to sidetrack your healthcare team. So your healthcare team is, of course, a wonderful place to ask your questions because they know everything about you. They know your medical records, and they have more they detailed information about you. So we'll take the information you learned today and bring back your questions to your healthcare team, knowing with, with, with um, full permission from all of us that, indeed, you do all your questions will be important to ask. Whatever your question or concern is, please do ask your healthcare team. And you don't have to wait a month for your next appointment. You can call them. You can get in touch with the office and ask your questions. That's really important. Um, that's one message I want you to have. Secondly, if you want to get a medical question answered, we do recommend that you contact one, one resource is the National Cancer Institute. And their toll-free number is 1-800-422-6237. And we'll be sending all that information to you with the evaluations. But also they happen to have on their website, it's www.cancer.gov, they have a live chat feature, which is nice for people in the U.S. as well as our international participants where you can post your question and information specialists will address your question. They'll answer your question. And that many people find that very helpful because you get information that you can, again, bring back to your treating healthcare team, and that can be very useful to you. Um, so that's another resource. Plus, you're going to get all the resources of all the different organizations that can assist you with medical questions. Um, we'll be sending that information to you as well with the evaluation um, information that you'll be getting. Um, in addition, um, of course, um, we uh, we certainly recommend that you um, you know really you know go to credible websites. So we're going to be giving you a whole listing of resources that are quite respected and were credible to get your information. And you can also ask your healthcare team where else you can get information, fact sheets, and all sorts of information like that. Um, certainly, there are organizations like the Leukemia Lymphoma Society that have just wonderful um, informational fact sheets about. Um, GVHT that you could access, just just wonderful information that you can access. So there are very large national organizations 
the American Cancer Society, uh, Cancer Care, they, all of these organizations have information that you can access um, very readily, um, both on their websites and also you can call their information specialists. And we, again, as we conclude, we don't want anyone to feel you're alone. We want you to know that you're part of a community of support here and that we're all here to help you. And we're simply a phone call away or a mouse click away on your computer. We do have two programs coming up that might be of interest to you um, as participants. Um, one is happening tomorrow, actually. It's an update on clinical trials. Some of you have signed up for that already, but if you haven't, it's uh, tomorrow. And we have another one on March 15th on updates from the American Society of Clinical Oncology recent meeting, um, and um, that also might be of interest to you as well. So again, um, as we conclude the program, we don't want anyone to feel you're alone. You are part of this really great resources that you can access and, and plus your healthcare team. And we want to thank you very much for your participation today and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.